Welcome to The Daily Bite with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today we study from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness, Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. We've got a few different themes crammed into this chapter together today. There's the idea of loving one another. There's some six commandment, adultery warnings, and then there's end times, resurrection language as well. So let's start right at the start of the chapter. Paul, Timothy, Silas, as they write this letter, urging the brothers in the church in Thessalonica that they would continue to live in the gospel, that they would continue to be faithful. Again, they gave thanks in chapter 1 for their thankfulness. Paul has mentioned in chapter 3 the good report from Timothy about how their faith is doing as Timothy had checked up on them during Paul's time in Athens. And they're just encouraging them in this manner again, more and more. So it's not the first time they've said it, and they're going to use this more and more language twice in the chapter Walk in a way that is pleasing to God. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. It's a nice big word. It's a theological word that the church likes to use quite frequently. Sanctify. Sanctus is the the Latin word for holy. Sanctify is to make holy, to consecrate something. And so sanctification is 
the process by which God makes you holy. I'm not holy. I'm a sinner. I'm unclean. I do not deserve to be with the Lord. Far from it. As I have rebelled against him, I deserve everything that is his wrath. I deserve death and damnation. And yet sanctification, well, sanctification comes second. So you get justified by Jesus Christ, by his blood. You have been made clean. Sanctification is the, I think we describe it as an ongoing process that the Lord is forming you, he's shaping you to be his child and to live this life not for yourself, but for him. So maybe like the, the letter to the church in Rome, as Paul encourages them not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of their mind, the process by which God makes you Holy. It's a now and a not yet. You are holy because of justification, cleansed by the cross, by Jesus. And yet it is something where the Lord is continuing to work on us, form us, shape us, and that really truly becomes its fullness, its completeness in the resurrection when these bodies are glorified. And I wanted to point that to that because we're coming to that in chapter at the end of the chapter. We will be glorified. And paradise will have no more sin. All those unclean thoughts that you've had today already, all those evil things that you've said to another person today already, all those bad things that you did, all the times you've broken God's commands, none of those are there anymore. In paradise, we will be truly, fully, completely sanctified, holy, without fault, without blemish. But thanks be to God that that's how he sees us now, through Jesus Christ. So, for your sanctification, this is what God plans. This is God's will for you. And again, six commandment stuff is really going to be verses three through seven, eight, I guess. So, as we look at this, abstain from sexual immorality. That's going to cover a broad spectrum of different things. There's, especially in our own culture, the sexual immorality is rampant. It's everywhere. Quite honestly, I'm not even sure today in 21st century America you can avoid sexual immorality. Not saying there aren't people who aren't tempted by it, but if this is one of the temptations that you particularly struggle with, it's all around you all day, every day. You can't go outside without seeing it. You can't Try to have personal entertainment in your home as you watch TV or a movie without seeing it. It's everywhere. Both in the forms of, of what, what's being displayed to us in terms of what people are doing. Divorce, affairs, um, lust, the, the different kinds of marriage or relationships promoted by our society. But also just in what our own eyes are being trained for. I think it's fair and true to say that we have been taught to look at sex like a buffet. That we have been taught, our our boys especially, but pornography's rise among women is, has been lightning fast. I mean, the statistic of of young men who look at pornography at least once a month is 79%. For young women, 
who look at pornography at least once a month, it's 76%. The gap has been closed. And again, this is, it's just, it's thrown at you everywhere. Billboards, as you scroll your news feed, everywhere. And so they, their culture was different than ours. They didn't have the same kind of entertainment as we do. But sexual immorality has been a big problem for a long time. You can go all the way back to the book of Genesis, which is a good 6,000 or more years ago, maybe seven. It was there already. It may take some different forms. There have been eras where different kinds of sexual sin are more tempting than others. But this is the challenge. Let each one of you know how to control his own body. I think that's another great difficulty for us, again, in our era. We don't know how to control ourselves. Capitalism relies upon it. Right, The temptation to, to always have something more. If you're content, capitalism fails. Think about marketing. That whole industry comes crashing down if you're not content. Now, this isn't just about that. This is specifically about sex. So control your own body. Six commandment style. Don't engage in affairs. Don't engage with prostitutes. Don't... Husbands, die to yourself. Divorcing your wife is not dying to yourself. Control your body. Control your flesh. All these things fit in. And holiness and honor. You're, you're holy. That's 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 where Paul says that your body is not your own. You've been bought at a price. Our bodies belong to Christ. If you're married, your body also belongs to your spouse. That's 1 Corinthians 7, right at the start of the chapter. But your body, control your body in holiness, it's set apart. You're not to use your body the way the world around you uses their bodies. You're not to conform to this world. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles do. In this case, some of us being Gentiles, but... The phrase Gentile here is used as a reference to those outside the church. Even many of the Thessalonians would have been Gentiles from Paul's perspective. But again, it was, it was Jew or Gentile. That is, one of God's people or one of the rest of the world. And so even now, it almost becomes like Christian and Gentile. And we sort of talk this way as the church today. You're either the church or you're part of the world around us. That's the language here. So... The world around us engages in all kinds of sexual immorality. We're called to be different. Then we're told not to transgress or wrong our brother in this matter. That's the 10th commandment, Exodus chapter 20. I'll just start with commandment 9. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. In this, Luther, in writing his small catechism, says not only do we not just not only do we not covet the, the wife of our neighbor, we don't do anything that would seek to cause his wife to leave him. But instead, we do all that we can to encourage his wife to remain there and do her duty. And that's the kind of thing that we're seeing in this, this instruction here in, in chapter 4. 
if you're encouraging your your brother, so your neighbor, if you're encouraging his wife to leave, you're you're wronging your brother. You're harming him. So again, sixth commandment, sexual immorality, adultery is the picture here in this. The Lord is an avenger in all these things. We told you beforehand, solemnly warned you. Second time he's talked about what he's told them before in the letter, that beforehand word. But he's given them a warning. As you come into the church, as you are made a Christian, as a child of God, you have to die to the world around you. Those who seek to cling to the world, this is Jesus' words in the gospel again and again, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will have it. Verse 9 the, again, the idea of loving one another, and he, he lauds them. They're doing this well, but he instructs them to do it more and more. They've been doing this all throughout Macedonia, so the region that they live in, not just even within the church, but they're spreading this love to others. So do this more and more. Aspire to live quietly. That's not an aspiration, I think, for most people today. Again, in our culture, our culture teaches us to, to dream big, The quiet life is the life that the scriptures really speak about. Because in the in the fame, it's hard to slow down, it's hard to serve your neighbor. But in the day to day life, in the quiet life, looking at the needs around you, being able to see the needs around you, and again that's part of loving those. Mind your own affairs. Not being a busybody, as a phrase I think will get used also in Paul's epistles. This does connect too, though, to, I think, our day, to the global information that we have. If something's happening on the other side of the world, yeah, you can learn all about it on the internet. But the time you just spent learning about it on the internet isn't really used well. Most likely. Most likely, you're not going to be able to help the situation on the other side of the world, and you just lost 30 minutes, a couple hours that you could have used to figure out what was going on in your neighbor's life next door to you, and that's a situation you actually could have helped with. Work with your hands as we instructed. They did this by example among them. That reminds me of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. We work so that we can help our neighbor. A different perspective than the world around us has. They work so that they can eat, drink, and be merry. I think that Ephesians quote also helps with the idea that we're not dependent on anyone. It's not that being dependent is wrong. Really, we're all interdependent within a community upon one another, and this is good. I mean, we are one body with many members. The eye needs the hand. The hand needs the ear, and so forth. We need one another. The picture here, though, is that, again, you're working so that you have something to give. Don't be dependent to the point where you have nothing to use to help someone else. The last section is going to be about the resurrection, the return of Christ on the last day. Uh, So first, 
he tells them he doesn't want them to grieve as others do who have no hope. So when somebody has fallen asleep, that's a picture of death here, because the resurrection is like waking up from death. When someone is asleep, when someone has died, don't grieve the same way the world does. Why not? That's a question for your kids. Why don't we grieve like others? When grandma passed away, why was it different for us? Why did we go to a funeral? Why did we hear about Jesus? Why did we talk about a resurrection? Because we know it's true. We know Jesus will come again. We know the dead will be raised. We know that for those who were in Christ, they are still in Christ and that they are merely asleep. The word cemetery actually is an old word for a dormitory, a place of sleep. The cemetery is a, a resting place. And on the last day, all of those graves will be opened up. The dead will be raised and live again. Christ has promised it. And so we don't grieve like those around us. I, I truly don't know how people who are not just atheistic, but, but people who don't have that, that view of hope, that there is something coming, I don't know how they handle death. It would be that much more sorrowful, that much more painful, that much more hurtful to lose someone that you care about. Because there is no comfort. You just got to put it behind you and, and bury it and move on to another day. Eat, drink, and be merry. Find somebody else to be merry with, I guess. But here, for the Christian, we don't mourn that way because we know we'll see them again. We know that to live is Christ, to die is gain. They haven't lost. We have temporarily lost. We will miss them. There is grief, there is sorrow, there is pain. This is true. It's not to say that's not there at all, but it's different than the world's because they live. And this is good. This is the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. This section often gets confused in the, the history of the church, especially recently with uh, I, what's called a rapture theology, the idea that Jesus is going to essentially take everybody from the earth that is Christian, that believes in him, and that there's going to then be those who are left behind, which was the name of a, a famous book series written not too long ago uh, about such a topic. It's not what the text says. I mean, to be straightforward, Paul describes everything happening here in, in one moment. And what does he picture? He pictures this, that the dead... Those who have passed before us, those who are asleep right now, they will be raised. And Christ will gather them to himself. And as he's gathering them to himself, verse 17, we who are alive will be caught up together with them. Not separate events. It's all happening. Same time. We're caught to meet the Lord in the air and we will always be with the Lord. That's it. This is a picture of the resurrection. It's a picture of the last day. But it's not a full picture. You get more in Revelation, you get more in the Gospels, and so forth. This is a glimpse. And it's meant to be encouraging. Not confusing, not coming up with all kinds of crazy accounts. So first, ask your kids what they think the last day is going to look like. What's it going to be like when Jesus returns? 
have that family conversation, talk about the return of Christ, talk about the resurrection of the dead, talk about, we don't know much, but talk about the new body, the glorified body, the risen body that is now imperishable, immortal, because of the gift of Christ. Right now we're mortal, right now we're perishable, but after the resurrection, we will be changed. 1 Corinthians 15 gets into that quite a bit. Talk about paradise. This is where our eyes are fixed, our hope is fixed on the promise of Jesus that we get to be with him always, forever. Verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. Let the resurrection fill your days. Talk about these things. Deuteronomy 6 style, when you walk along the road, when you're lying down, when you're sitting, you know, rising up, whatever it is you're doing, talk about the resurrection. Encourage one another with these words. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. And because he lives, you live. Amen.